Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is Jean. I'm your host. I am a person in successful long-term recovery from alcohol addiction, and I've been writing about my experiences from day one over on unpickledblog.com. That's where I tell my story, and I invite you to tell your stories here. So my journey of healing, as I could call it in the like greeting card format, journey of healing, it's had a lot to do with getting to know myself and be on my own terms with who I am instead of sort of seeing myself how others see me. I just never cared what I thought. I only cared, you know, what I could make the world see. And so for me, sobriety and recovery has had a lot to do with just learning to get grounded in myself. And that lesson sparked the topic for this episode. So our guest tonight is Margaret, and Margaret has been on the show before. She was on a holiday episode a couple years ago, and she returns tonight to talk about redefining ourselves when the one thing that we're known for or known as or see ourselves as changes. And that can apply to a lot of life changes, divorce, parenthood, empty nest, a health crisis, even sobriety itself. And in Margaret's case, we're talking about retirement from a long, successful career in the public sector. So, Margaret, welcome back to the Bubble Hour. How are you? I'm well, Dean. Thank you. I know you're back. I'm happy to have you here. It's good to hear your voice. Um, You and I, we always get a few minutes to talk before the recording starts, and um, Whenever I chat with Margaret on here, it's like I always am sad when the recording starts because we're in the middle of something <laughs> deep really quick. So I think we're in for a really good episode. But before we dig into our topic, I'd, I'd like you to go back and just talk for a few minutes about your relationship to alcohol before you realized it was problematic and then how life unfolded, how it related to your career and, and how you started to see that it was getting in your way. Sure. Okay, so I would say that um, I did fairly normal experimentation, certainly uh, normal for the people I hung around with, and um, started experimenting at about 14. And um, when I was 14, I had a very bad, uh, I got very drunk on rye, and I was falling down drunk in front of my parents. I came home, I spilled all about who I'd been with and who bought the booze, and it was a very upsetting to my parents, obviously, and I had been raised in a really strict household. Uh, my dad had a, a fundamental Christian background, and they didn't drink at all in the early days. They had sort of relaxed that a bit by the time I was 14, but very strong attitude about alcohol. My mom, not so much. She struggled with it. So this drunken experience, um, they grounded me for um, probably the first four months of my second year of high school. And I was so mortified and so ashamed and so upset that I had disappointed my parents that I didn't drink all through high school um, until the last summer before I started university. And I dated a a 
guy that was a couple years older. He was already um, at university and he was of drinking age. I was just short of it. And I remember that experience because he, um, he was the only person I had met at this point that integrated drinking into everyday um, life. I would go over to his place. He had a backyard pool on us on summer evenings. It was a sort of a summer romance and his uh, parents, you know, let him buy beer and we would drink two or three beers by his pool. And it was the first time I had been just mildly drunk, um, a little bit of a buzz and on a fairly regular basis and experienced that because all of my drinking before that had been getting stupid drunk and at a party or at a high school dance or um, with friends and sort of this crazy drunk, whereas this was just sort of a soft buzz and it was definitely part of his lifestyle. And I think that that's kind of what I returned to later in life was that kind of drinking. Um, But then I went to university and um, it was a party school and I sort of, I attracted or they attracted me and all the really fun people and I did a lot of binge drinking in universities, some risky behavior that went with that. And um, definitely I was the Friday afternoon at the campus pub girl with the draft beer and dancing. And um, when I left university, I sort of compartmentalized that stage of my life as a typical university experience. And I would actually say that in my um, mid-20s, by the time I started my career, um, well into my late 30s, I was a normal drinker and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because I definitely had an off switch. I had a distinct limit where I didn't like the sensation of being out of control and I wasn't going home and then drinking privately. I just, um, I just had an off switch and it kind of made me start thinking a lot. I've spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, the continuum theory of alcoholism versus, uh, you know, the disease model And I would say for me, um, I definitely was on a continuum, and I think I worked pretty hard at developing a problem. It uh, it didn't seem to be there. Um, I'm still working on that theory. But so for (laughs) for me, uh, (laughs) in my, I'd say my early 30s, when I had small children, um, normal was uh, not drinking during the week, splitting a bottle of wine with my husband on Friday nights while we made homemade pizza for our kids and watched a Disney movie. And then Saturday night we had a routine where we would put the kids to bed early and we'd make a later dinner and we'd split a bottle of, that was our white wine night and Friday was our red wine night. And um, I came from a place where um, liquor stores were closed on Sundays. There was no option. We would buy one bottle at a time and it would be about two bottles a weekend. Um, I always drank, overdrank if we went to dinner parties and in um, my cohort, dinner parties were really big. That's what we did. We got babysitters and I had sort of a group of friends where we'd rotate around and we always all got drunk at our dinner parties. And uh, and I got to the point where um, I would almost dread going because I knew it would mean a hangover the next day. And it didn't occur to me that I didn't have to drink that much. Um, but later, as I kind of worked that through, I thought, well, that was my social anxiety, which I'll <laughs> refer to later. So it wasn't, I don't think it was a big problem. Um, but by my late 30s, um, as I increased my responsibility at work and took on a new position, and our family life was getting busier, um, and our income grew, um, we were in a position where we sort of developed wine as a hobby 
it was sophisticated in my group to be knowledgeable about wine and to pair wine with what you were cooking. And um, we were in a position where we could buy cases of wine. And that really opened a door for both my husband and I. Um, We had always said, and this should have been a red flag too, when we'd split a bottle of wine, we would often have this conversation about why the bottle was so small. Like they really should make it like at least another half size larger. And we always kind of craved another drink after we split it, but we didn't go into a second bottle. But by the time um, I was in my late 30s, we were definitely going into a second bottle. It was no longer splitting a bottle of wine. And I would say from my late 30s to uh, probably to 50, and I'm 53 now, um, I started to think on many occasions, um, this is too much. Or I'd wake up in the morning and think, what was that? And... um, I, there was, I would try to talk about it with my husband. And one thing that really bothered me and was a red flag is that eventually, um, because I talked about it so much in a hang in a hungover state, um, I would say, you know, we drank too much last night and he'd say, I don't want to have this conversation. Uh, let's have it at five o'clock. And cause he knew at five o'clock, I would probably be suggesting we open some more wine. And uh, he said, if you want to talk about it at five o'clock, but I'm not talking about it with you at 9 a.m. So I thought in every area of my life, I'm pretty uh, true to my word. I consider myself a person that puts a high value on integrity and doing what I say I'm going to do. And it was the one thing that I couldn't started. I couldn't follow through on what my intention was. So I think, uh, you know, some of the catalysts for uh, shifting my drinking patterns were definitely the stressors at work were enormous. I took on a leadership role, managing a staff and um, other stakeholders. And um, my family stresses increased with raising teenagers. And I had a very sick mother. And um, I started to integrate wine into my weekly experience during after when I got home from work. Um, it was my number one tool for relaxation. And um, the other thing that I've thought about a lot is, especially towards the end, is I think the fact that I got away with it, nobody ever called me on it. Everybody saw me as uh, in control. Margaret would never, ever let herself get out of control about something like that. So nobody needed to worry. And I thought that the people closest to me, and I think my my children uh, certainly noticed it on occasion, but as I could exercise, I could work with a mild hangover and part of me was kind of proud of it. I felt like this edgy person that could work hard and play hard. And um, I thought surely if I had a problem, somebody would call me out on it. But in the last 10 years, there were um, red flags and the biggest red flag for me uh, was this shift in uh, my rules that I always had the rule that I had to drink more, not drink more nights than I drank. So that meant Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday, but certainly not Monday to Thursday because that meant four nights I wasn't drinking and anyone who doesn't drink four nights in a row can't have a problem. And um, then I would I would just change those rules all the time towards the end and it didn't matter what night of the week it was. If I had had a bad day at work or somebody had ticked me off or I was dealing with something, it, that was an excuse to drink. And it, then I realized we used to call it mad, sad or glad was an excuse to drink and so out of relief I would drink after um, doing a difficult meeting I would come home and celebrate with a a glass of wine after a difficult conflict I would come home and have a glass of wine so 
Um, and then the obsession, counting my days off, thinking about it all the time. Um, oh, I, wasn't, I decided I would share this one. I don't know why this seems ridiculous now that this wasn't a red flag in the moment. I put a wine fridge in our closet. Um, and it, it <laughs> was behind my Of course. Who doesn't need a wine fridge in their closet? (laughs) And it was really so that I could um, have a glass of wine in the bathtub and not um, drink in front of my kids who were teenagers at this point who thought that I just had, who I thought thought I had one glass of wine with dinner. And then I'd retire to my room and have a long bath with my wine fridge. And, uh, but I knew I wasn't fooling them. I remember my one daughter calling me out. I'd had a bad day at work and I walked right through the door with my coat on, right to the fridge, and in my work clothes and coat, poured myself a glass of wine and, and talked from the fridge. And she said, really, Mom? <laughs> and, you know, at the time, that was, that was kind of normal. So, um, and I also really looked forward. I took lots of breaks from uh, drinking. I would go on cleanses. It would be the new year. It would be January. And I really, really looked forward to those uh, breaks and in those breaks, I always felt better. And um, I, I, but I would never structure them around. I'm drinking too much. I need to take a break. It would be like, well, you know, Christmas was really, really busy and too much partying and socializing. So I need to take a break or I'm going to, I'm going to go on a diet. So I need to take a break. But I think I was building those out just for some relief time. Um, Other red flags was, uh, in the carpooling stage of my life, I was organizing my carpooling around uh, my evening drinking. So I would carpool, always volunteer. It didn't matter if it was rush hour. Yes, I'll do the 5.30 drop-off uh, for my kids. I didn't want to be on the 9 o'clock pickup. And I had to um, sort of organize my time around that. And um, I think that for me, uh, the catalyst to quit uh, was – First of all, once the voice gets in your head that you're drinking too much, it's really hard to ignore that voice. And it, it really, it's really a buzzkill to, to be drinking and thinking that at the same time. So it was no longer pleasurable for me. And um, things I was started to go through menopause, and um, the alcohol exacerbated that, and it interfered with my sleep terribly. Um, I would, could fall asleep, and then I would wake up, and my voice would... I'd have that horrible 4 a.m. anxiety and I was really starting to feel lousy and I wasn't stopping. And I thought, how can I have everything else in my life from the outside, the exercise, the diet, the clothes, I take care of myself. And yet this piece, I was just pushing down and hiding and I was living um, this life that wasn't very holistic and certainly internally was causing a collapse for me. And, uh, and that's when I stopped two and a half years ago. So that would be my history. You articulate it so well. You really do. Um, it just, you take me back to where I was because my story was very similar (laughs) to yours. And, um, as some of the things you're saying, I'm like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. I forgot about that. (laughs) Did you have a wine? Did you have a wine fridge in your closet though, Jean? Come on. No, I didn't. Only because I didn't have a plug in my closet and I hadn't thought of it. But, you know, that's really just another way of hiding alcohol. And I I hid boxes of alcohol in the back of the pantry in the laundry room and would swap them out, you know, thinking, well, knowing that no one was really paying attention and noticing. And um, 
and I, and hiding, you know, hiding your alcohol is a, is a sign and, and drinking alone and isolating is, is a red flag. And, you know, you caught those red flags, but um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's not, it all does sound very familiar to me. And, you know, one thing that I've really kind of realized is that my drinking was sort of to shift gears between the face, the brave face that I put on for the world all day and, and who I really was, you know, so it mm-hmm. almost allowed me to be alone with myself and to sort of numb some of the discomfort. Like I, I thought I was, I thought I liked my life because I really, <laughs> I, I really wanted to be that person, you know, who was in charge and mm-hmm. had it together and, and looked good from the outside. Because I really, like, I really didn't care how I felt. I don't know if you had that, but I really, I didn't, I never thought. I knew the words like, oh, how we feel about ourselves is so important. But how I felt about myself was however other people felt about me. That's how I thought I felt. And so what I really, what I, what I really thought of myself, I didn't consider, but it gave me discomfort because what I was doing all day somehow wasn't really a fit for what I, who I really was. So for me, that, uh, that would... kind of mitigated some of that. Did you find that? Yeah, I was exactly the same way. And I didn't really feel that I deserved to um, feel differently than what I felt. And um, what other people people told me and reinforced that I was doing a good job and that I looked like I had it all together, that kept me going for a long time. Yeah, me too. And I I felt like that that was the authentic me because I liked it. Like I liked how it felt to be out in the world. And I remember, I even wrote about this on my blog, but like I, one moment that just I loved was on the days when I'd go to Costco after work and I'd still be in my suit and I'd be clicking around Costco with this huge yeah. um, cart full of groceries because I felt like I am I am the it woman. Like I have a big family to woman. feed. I'm superwoman. Look at me. I I'm put together. I've clearly been working all day. Like how how codependent is it to care so much mm-hmm. about what other people think of you that you're like that you're um, what's the word like self-reflecting in a grocery store like this is who I want to be, you know. And yeah, exactly. and that was good food in that cart, you know. That wasn't just pizza pops. Like that was there was good food in that cart. <laughs> you're going to go home I and cook pretty- that food. Yep. Yeah, and it's going to be good. And then, and and here's the part that I that would happen next that wasn't so good was I would I would leave that store, and I I would push my cart out to the car, <clears throat> and and where I live, the Costco like I'm in Canada, and the liquor stores aren't inside. They don't sell liquor inside of regular stores. It has to be in a standalone store. So outside the Costco is the Costco liquor department, <clears throat> and so mm-hmm. I would. I would be looking at it the whole time I was putting the groceries in my car and I'd be thinking, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to. And then I'd have that effort moment. Of course I'm going to. So I'd get the groceries in my car and then I would like, I almost want to cry telling you this. I would do kind of this walk of shame, you know, Mm -hmm. I would go from being this, I have it so together. And then the reality would quick in that I was taking my grocery cart into that liquor store because there was some specific things that I definitely like to get from there that, that I needed. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I wasn't so proud then when I pushed the second cart load back out to my car and loaded it in, but 
there was a part of me too that sort of blew that off. And I was like, well, nobody knows this is all for me. And, you know, people drink and I entertain and, you know, I was sort of justifying it the whole way, but so yeah, that superwoman cape was heavy. (laughs) It's interesting now in sobriety to see women like that and see them in a different light. I, I'm in Ontario and, um, our liquor is sold separately too, but I have a grocery store around the corner and then there's a local Ontario wine um, little shop in it. And I see women just as you described and there's, I've never noticed it until I got sober, a giant poster, that advertisement outside the store and it's a, you know, a gourmet meal. And, and then in big words, it says need wine tonight, question mark. And you (laughs) see women in there and, and, just playing right to them, and I yeah. have such a wave of compassion for them. Yes, because yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not judging every single one, thinking they're all alcoholics, but I certainly, it certainly is a uh, a reminder to me. Yeah, of what it was like. Me too, and I, I wish I, yeah. I wish I was like brave enough to just squeeze someone's arm and just say, hey hang in there, you know, something, but, yeah. but it's our own journey. Right. And we all, we right, all exactly. see that for ourselves, but I, I have that same thing too. In fact, sometimes I even see those young girls that are like doing it all and being people pleasers. And, and I, I just hope for them that, that they're not on the same trajectory that I was, but, yeah, but what I we're really, what, what, what we wanted to kind of focus our conversation on was the, the change itself of shedding that identity. And I know you and I are alike in that um, because both of us, I think we're in a supervisory position. So I really had my armor. Um, No Mm -hmm. one got to see me undone ever. I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't come to work with, you know, sweats and a ponytail. Like I always wore the clothes, like the clothes were my armor. My attitude was my armor. Mm -hmm. And um, I was probably, people say this is hard to believe about me, but it's super true. Um, I, I really relied on a little bit of being intimidating, being unreachable, aloof, sharp, like crisp. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I wasn't good at it, but uh, I remember someone telling me that they felt very intimidated by me and I thought, good, that's what I'm going for. So don't get too close. Um, yep. but I wonder now, like as retirement rolls out ahead of you, you know, you don't, that layer of armor isn't necessary in the day to day, but do you feel like you'll miss it? Like when you run into people in the well, community, how do you sort of reconcile the identities? I'm just sort of processing that right now. It's funny that you'd ask that today because if you'd asked me that yesterday morning, I would have said, I love having the armor off. But I have spent uh, the last almost six weeks up. We have a cottage on a lake. It's pretty isolated. I have some friends on the lake, but I basically live in a forest for six weeks. And I felt a tremendous sense of relief, uh, relief rather, and freedom and walked around in my bare feet and shorts and uh, just thought, thank God I'm not in my work clothes. And I thought, I'm good with this. I'm good with just being me. And then I joined through my yoga studio, a book club that, and last night was its first meeting. And it's on a book. I don't know if maybe some of the listeners know it. It's uh, The Untethered Soul. 
and it's it's quite it's basically a book about another version of mindfulness and enlightenment and living presently and ignoring the inner chatter in your voice. So I read the book over the summer, and then I ended up in a room full of about 12 people last night uh, with my yoga instructor, who's a mindfulness coach. And I found myself, first of all, just listening, which I usually do in meetings. First, I try to size everybody up. Um, I found that I borderline caught myself doing it, trying to facilitate the group rather than share anything personal. I asked people questions. I tried to, I was conscious that it wasn't my job to strip down a bit with people drill down in my questioning, but a big part of my job was facilitating teams and it was a knee jerk, like a second skin to me. And I had, and I did it to push any focus away from me because there was no way. And I had to, I haven't sorted it out yet in my own mind on the way home. I said, is that just keeping a healthy boundary because that's too much for you to sit in with a room and you don't need to sit with a room of strangers and talk about your inner voice. Like maybe this was a bad idea or you wanted to explore this book further and you're uncomfortable. You're going out of your comfort zone and that's usually good. So I haven't sorted out what, what happened there. And I'm hoping that my, my mindfulness coach, because he knows me quite well now, I thought I've got it. This is his job. It's not my job. I just, I, you know, I thought, did I talk too much, too little? I've just done a whole self critique on that. So Mm. To answer the question, it's going to be, I think it's going to take me a while to figure out uh, what what I'm sliding into, what, you know, am I my authentic self in every situation? Absolutely not. So Right. Do you know who your authentic yeah. self is? Do you have any, like, <laughs> questions about that? Like, Well, I, I think <laughs> that sobriety <laughs> certainly helps you strip that down. And um, I am far more introverted than um, I ever really realized. I was a shy kid, and I, lots of people burst out laughing when I tell them that I'm basically shy. They, I call myself a fake extrovert. My job required it. it but socially, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I need to, if I'm in a room and the group isn't, it, if there's awkwardness, I'll try to help that a bit. Um, but basically the biggest learning realization as I gave up the drinking was, wow, do I ever really not like being on when I was on, which required public speaking, um, facilitating meetings, all that kind of stuff. I needed to have wine and quiet time at that point, just to come down from it, just because it looped me up internally so much. And some people, I mean, you need a certain amount of adrenaline and uh, you are going to be heightened to uh, do public speaking and that kind of thing. But some people really, really thrive on that. And yes, I did, I did get energized by it, but it took me a long time to come off of it and it um, caused me great anxiety before I'd have to do it. And I had to do it a lot and I got more comfortable with it. But when I got sober, I dreaded it more than I ever did and I fretted about it more. So um, my authentic self really needs a lot of downtime. Um, I'll have to give myself permission to do that because I'll sometimes catch myself saying, is this downtime or is this isolating? 
Um, right. Or, oh, I haven't seen a friend in a long time. I should call a friend. I shouldn't just wait for them to call me. So I still have that sort of thing going on. But basically, I'm a pretty quiet person uh, who likes one-on-one conversations. I can be really chatty one-on-one. And um, I, you know, I'm just that, that job. I, one thing that I remember this right before I retired or was making the decision that this would be the time that I retired. Um, I saw a poster on Facebook, you know, how they're always posting things. And it was um, the phrase, not this with an X through it. And that was basically defined how I felt about my work. I had was doing a job that was not very aligned with my personality and I didn't know what retirement was going to bring, but I had come to the realization that it needed to be anything but this, that this job was taking its toll on me. And as I got healthier and healthier, I wanted to be at yoga class rather than solving a problem at work. I wanted, um, I needed it more than I realized so um, I, it's a journey to the authentic self for sure. Yeah, right. And giving yourself permission to be quiet and shy if that's what you feel like being. That I, I find that hard. I, I feel pressure to be nice and to make other people feel comfortable sometimes in a group when I remind mm-hmm. myself it's okay if I'm, if I'm a shy person and I'm quiet because I'm the same. I, I I I so resonate with when you said a fake extrovert. For me, that's very much my adaptive self is the extrovert. Yeah. And and um, same. I I will I'll play that role if it needs to be played. And sometimes sometimes I do jump into it. I feel like being like that, but I also want to jump mm-hmm. back in and be quiet again. And um, mm-hmm. I just have to remind myself of that. Like if that's who you are, then that's okay. You know, you're always telling people be who you are, be yourself. If yourself is a quiet person, that's okay. Um, you could be quiet and kind. You can be quiet and gracious. <laughs> right. um, mm-hmm. But, but the, I think it's a defense mechanism sometimes to slip into that um, external role to, to, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of people pleasing and maybe making people like us the easy way, you know, by, by being, facilitating the room by making sure everyone else is okay. So when you quit drinking and, and kept working and did yoga become your replacement? How did you, how did you then reconcile those feelings? How did I manage working and not drinking? Is that what your question is? Well, um, I had been doing yoga probably for about, five years uh, before I quit drinking. I, I worked out a lot. Um, so that was sort of there. It was certainly not with the intensity or depth that it became after I quit drinking. But uh, like everyone who quits, the first three months were just um, by the skin of my teeth, really. It was just a steely determination. I, um, I read a lot of books. I uh, listened to these podcasts. And with the work, it, I still, it took a long time. Um, I remember, I think it was Ellie on the bubble hour. I listened to, it was just these, all these archived shows that I would pull up. And um, she talked about rewiring your brain. Like if you went through the front door, when you came home, go through the back door, Mm -hmm. changed all of my habits. So um, 
where so I I used to work out early in the morning before work. I still do a bit, but um, I changed my workout to the drinking hour. So I would work out and come home later and eat right away. Uh, not have any of that downtime. I still need to eat pretty early as soon as I'm hungry because I don't like sitting around and waiting. Um, so it just took time to um, to become aware when I was in a difficult situation at work, and this is where the yoga helped me because they talk about your practice, taking your practice from the mat to the world, is literally in a, in a tense moment at work, I would say I would breathe. I'd just take that pause and breathe through the moment and where I used to think I literally would picture uh, which bottle of wine I was going to chill when somebody was uh, going off about something. It would My thought would be about wine. Well, I'll get through this because by 5.30 I can have a glass of wine. Whereas I shifted that to I can breathe through this in the moment I can't believe how helpful that is. And then it's gone. When I, when I get home, what biggest shift I noticed over a period of a year was my ability to compartmentalize work. I didn't come home and have a little pity party about over my wine while I stared at a wall and thought about conversations and um, who was ticking me off and uh, who needed to do better. I let it go. Um, mm-hmm. In the moment, I there was a complete process there was it was a process but there was a freeing where I didn't need to ruminate and it was just just happened um you know I think some of the tools I was using like yoga like reading some things on mindfulness definitely helped but I couldn't I would actually forget about a problem on Friday that needed to be addressed um I could say oh we'll worry about it on Monday and I get to work and somebody could talk start talking to me about it and I think oh right yeah we need to talk about that whereas before that could have been a whole theme of my weekend over one. And mm-hmm. I just somehow developed the ability and it wasn't that I didn't care. It's that I wasn't, I wanted to have different um, parts of my day and I came to really, really treasure my own time, sober time, self care time. I love that time. And I sure wasn't going to let some stupid problem at work, suck it up. Mm-hmm. You know, what's ironic is I think, for those of us that drank to sort of numb discomfort and numb problems and like deal with problems, it actually just hits the pause button on it. Like you're numb to it. So you can't process it. So it takes forever to get over that stuff. Right. (laughs) And you think I couldn't deal with this if I didn't have my wine. But the fact is you actually move through it so much faster when your mind is clear. Yeah. It's so ironic. Like it's, it's such a huge lie that we tell ourselves, but it's so believable. And yeah. maybe because it probably works at first. It definitely works at first for short term. And then we really yeah. buy into that. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so common. Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, we, because it's reinforced by the marketing and then it's perpetuated by these little jokes on Facebook. And that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many, you know, little graphic quotes that that are, you know, funny, and they are funny. Yeah. But but, you know, when you've had a problem with alcohol, those little things, they they're like a little stab in my heart when I see them now. I think, oh, that mm-hmm. makes me sad. I saw this yeah. T-shirt on uh, online, the onesie, and it said something like, um, "Wine makes 
mummy like funner or it was something oh, it was something like a baby quote about you know how mummy juice makes makes my mummy funner or something and or makes oh. mummy like me better it was awful i oh. i I, my heart just cringed at the thought of anybody putting that on their baby and laughing at it because all it really does is it's a way to sort of laugh off your pain and keep it going exactly. longer. Um, and you and I, we talked about this in the pre-call too, that we were both like fiercely protective of our work performance. Like I, I would never drink at a work function. I would never drink, you know, at a lunch um, drinking was strictly for after work. It was for coping with work. And same, I did right. some performing as well. And okay, oh, a performer, but that's where you developed your drinking problem was getting drunk to get up the courage to go on stage. But for me, it was actually, I would never perform drunk. But boy, did I need it afterwards to come down from the, the stage fright and the and the yeah. rush of being in front of people. Um, and to the idea of not needing that anymore is exhilarating to me as I, you know, look forward to, to my years out of work. Um, Very let's talk a minute. Yeah. Thank God. Um, when you were still drinking, what did you think it, retirement would look like for you? Did you look forward to Ooh. being able to drink all day? No, I never thought I would drink all day, but what that that's such a good question because um, my quitting drinking had a lot to do with my retirement plan because what was happening was I started to identify, and this has taken me a long time to be able to say this out loud, I was showing the signs of burnout at work um, about my job. I don't think at work, and I, I didn't even like that word. I thought... Um, police officers have burnout, you know, when people that have to see grisly scenes and all this stuff. And I started to read the symptoms of it. And I thought, and this was towards the end of my drinking, I thought going on, I work in a, a job that requires a lot of interaction with people that need you and um, a lot of care. And I, I was ashamed that I had burnout. And so I worked harder to hide it. And then I sort of thought, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna end like this. I'm not gonna end my career um, being burnt out and drinking. There's just no way because my performance really matters. So I and I thought, and then what, what happens then? I just sort of roll into a heap. And I certainly had the option to work longer, but I thought that not this. I don't want to do this anymore. So uh, um, I mentioned that we have a cottage on the lake, and a couple of summers before I quit drinking. I was, we were looking at property. We were at a friend who already was on the lake and we were at a happy hour and they had invited neighbors and they were an older couple. She was at least maybe five or eight years older than me, had a similar job and they were retired and they came over in bathing suits with cover-ups and sunburnt and drunk. And mm. I had this kind of, and at that point I didn't have huge compassion, even though I was headed there. I thought, oh my God, I can't. What am I going to be like that? And I started to, you know, realize that you can get into this fictional kind of world where um, you're drifting around in a bathing suit and a boat and in your flip flops, drinking all day. And I was mortified <laughs> at the thought. I had this visual, and I thought, that is not how I'm. That's not how I'm going at, out. 
And But I didn't have levels of understanding of what was going on there. I just knew that I had no plan for this. I was terrified of time opening up. So I was in a job that I was quite exhausted by with no good option if I um, quit while I was drinking, if I retired while I was drinking. So I thought, I want to find out what life is like, um, what opens up for me. It was that, that was the big theme in my mind is how do I open up time and space to exist somewhere else other than this mode. So I just knew I could not go into retirement like that. So it was, it's been, it was two and a half years of being sober before I made the decision to retire. And sobriety brought me this, um, you know, I took kayaking lessons. I did this mindfulness training. I increased my yoga. I got joined book clubs. I, um, I learned how to use my time and what do you know? There was a lot more to life um, than spending an evening, four hours of your evening drinking. And all of a sudden I became really, really interested in so much more. And that's what I wanted to find out before I retired. So you, you have a full life opening up ahead of you. And you, you know what's funny about that couple is that it may very well have been out of character for them, right? Like that might've been a one-off, Yeah. but we project mm-hmm. ourselves into what we see. And so I know I would have looked at them and, and seen a shame identity and thought like, if that were me, I would be doing that every day. I wouldn't have verbalized that, but you know, so I would assume right. that, that they were doing it every day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's very true. Because the things that that's bother true. us, things that we fear for ourselves in a way and um, so you know that's the irony of it is that that might have been a really benign situation but you were able to sort of inject something into it and then push against it to propel yourself and um, I actually I feel like I should go back to an earlier comment too because when I say like you and I both never let alcohol enter into our jobs blah 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 I also should say um that's not to judge anyone who does because we are really all the same and, you know, using Mm -hmm. the continuum theory or or the disease model either, like it just, we hadn't got there yet. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in our case, that, that fear of getting there was enough to, for us to push off against like a swimmer pushes off of a wall and, and go the other way. Um, You know, thank God that was enough for us, but, you know, some people aren't that lucky. The disease is, is too far. The, the, they're too far gone in that they, they can't keep it out of their professional life. And that all feels mixed up in that whole concept, you know, of like, yes. you know, I think um, those of us that were able to to make a change before a, a, a low bottom really hit or before we couldn't hide it anymore, um, I don't think that is any judgment on sh- or shame on anyone who can't. And I know you feel the same. It's that we, we see ourselves farther down the road and that's enough. And, um, and um, yeah, I do. I, I agree. I consider myself lucky. Some sort yeah. of grace came in early for me and, and uh, I yeah. recognize that it doesn't for everyone. For sure. Yeah. There's no judgment there. For sure. Um, and that being said, um, just respecting where you're at today. Now, 
what is the reality of life after alcohol? Like, I want to see how it compares to what you thought it would be like. Did you think it would be boring? Did you think it would be a drag? <laughs> um, it was hard for me to imagine um, enjoying life as much as I do without drinking. Um, I, in my early days, I smoked uh, for five years when I was in university. And I do compare it, and it's different. Uh, I mean, it's still, it's an addiction. But when I was a smoker, I couldn't imagine having a coffee without a cigarette. How could I possibly enjoy a coffee? Um, I couldn't imagine going to a bar without a cigarette. And I thought, I, how can you enjoy life without a cigarette? And I thought that it, you certainly can. People that have quit smoking know that. And then it was the same with alcohol. I thought, how can I sit by this beautiful lake and watch the water, you know, sparkle without a slight buzz. <laughs> like, it just seemed like that it would be um, too raw, too boring. Mm-hmm. And the reality is um, life is quieter, for sure. Um, I did lose a couple of friends. I, I didn't lose them in, in that they're no longer at all in my life, but there's certain invitations that I don't get. Um one of them being happy hour on the lake. I have some friends there. Um, and that's okay with me. At first, it felt I did have FOMO. And um, fear of I missing out. That a little bit. Yeah, fear <laughs> of missing out. I wrestled with that a little bit. And every now and then, it'll creep in. Um, the reality is, is that I am I'm way more self-aware than I ever was before. I was always introspective, but I think I was pretty inaccurate about what I was thinking about. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I probably still am, but at least I'm aware that I am. <laughs> before, oh. I thought I was right on all those little conversations I was having over my wine. Uh, now I, I write things down and I just think, oh, that's BS. <laughs> and... Um, so the reality is, is this, is that I was, especially in the early days, I was shocked at how anxious I was. Um, I couldn't sleep. I'd get into bed and I thought, oh, well, I don't have that sedative of wine. And I was very fearful all the time. It could be anything. It could be about work, usually about work or one of my kids. And I lived in this super jacked mode with like my sleeping with one eye open. And it took a long time to learn how to relax. And so the reality is, is that I spent a lot of time relaxing. And it's not, doesn't come easily to me. I'm wound pretty tightly. So relaxing is journaling, listening to music, having a bath, having tea, um, going for a walk. It's, it takes work for me to relax. And, you know, I had one friend say to me, I'd rather just have a glass of wine. When I was explaining to her, she knows my story and she, she drinks and she just, and you know, it was in good nature that she said, it's just quicker to have a glass of wine. And uh, she's right. It is. <laughs> that process of relaxing is, is enjoyable and it, there is growth there. So the reality of life without alcohol is I feel so much emotionally that I've grown so much in the two and a half years where I was stagnating before because I was afraid of feeling things. I was afraid of being bored or boring. And I do get bored sometimes. Um, 
it's at the beginning too. Um, if we didn't drink all week, certainly by Friday night, you'd be drinking. That was my big, let the week is over. So Friday night for a long time was like, okay, how am I going to transition from the week into the weekend? <laughs> and how right. I do it is pretty, pretty quietly, actually put away my work things, put my briefcase in my home office, um, play with the dogs. Like it's quiet. It's peaceful. So um, the reality is, is that life is more enjoyable, sober than not. And I didn't expect it to be. The reality is, is I, one big component I identified that was part of my drinking too, is I think it made me feel younger. I was grappling with, I was going through menopause. My kids were going away to school. Um, I was approaching 50. I, when I drank, well, sometimes I dance in the kitchen, and I still do sometimes. Uh, but I would, I felt inside, I felt younger, and that is quite false. So the reality is, I can look at myself and say, "You're 53. You've got kids that are this age. You are at this stage of your life. Like I'm, uh, I'm brutally honest with where I'm at, and I'm okay with it." Whereas uh-huh. before, there was this in seeking and grasping that disappeared. And it's peaceful. That's really good to hear because I think that's something that we really do struggle with as women. I mean, as much as the marketing industry pushes booze at us, they also push youth at us. And Mm -hmm. I think, boy, like you can do all of the, you know, plastic surgery in the world. You're you're still you and you're still your age mm-hmm. and you're still where you're at. And um, not to knock plastic surgery. I mean, I, I do what I do to, you know, stay happy with myself, but yeah. um, there's still like, I, I know exactly what you mean. Like I still, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, you know, no matter how good I look or don't look, I still am this age. I need to embrace this mm-hmm. age. I, I stand next to my daughter-in-law who's 25 and just, <laughs> doesn't speck of makeup and just is radiantly beautiful yeah. and and no matter how good I look I still look like her mom you know and <laughs> I have, I tell myself like the words I use are it's her turn I I had my turn that's to be exactly that. what I say it's, yeah is it it's, her, it's my turn I to say be, her time in the sun oh <laughs> uh, yeah and it ought to be completely honest with you I didn't really enjoy being um that age, not when I was that age, I wanted to be 40. I wanted to be self-assured and confident and a woman of the world. Mm-hmm. I didn't want men to notice me. I didn't want to get whistled at. So maybe I always wanted to be now anyway. <laughs> well, I was going to say that one of the joys of turning 50 is that you do, you're pretty well invisible out there. Um, I feel that way. And, you know, whether I'm standing in Starbucks or whatever, it doesn't matter how look, good I look if a 25-year-old walks in going to trump the attention and being invisible really works for me it's um i get i love observing people um i am shy i am introverted so it's a huge release to not have that attention i mean you can get sort of intoxicated by it when you're in your 20s there's a lot of power that comes with it and it's fleeting and it's it's not deep and it's not sustaining and, That's not who you uh, are. No, no. But as women, I think that uh, you know, five thousand reasons 
pure biology and society and, and media, what we look like really, really counts and uh, out there. And mm-hmm. it's draining and, it, and it's freeing to, to let that go. And it doesn't mean let yourself go. It just means be comfortable with who you are and, and uh, do what you need to do to make yourself feel better, but accept that it changes. And I always think about the alternative. I'm glad I'm, I don't, I don't want to be dead. I don't want to have died a young death. So one of the things, about, uh, you know, already I've lived longer than lots of people got to live. And I'm, I, that's the price that you pay with it. Does I get to at this point turn into an older woman? Right. And it's exciting. And uh, our, our age group is expected to live you know, pretty, pretty late into our nineties, if not into our triple digits. Oh my God. So we better get used to this body. You know, you say you feel invisible, but I have to tell you something. We're not invisible because I think that other women are watching. We watch each other, especially when I was really searching for answers, when I was really hurting before I quit drinking and in early sobriety. And even now, I watched other women and I saw those women who were grounded and centered. And I thought, I want that. That lady who's sitting there drinking her coffee and looks at peace or, oh my God, those older women in your yoga class that can do the bird of paradise pose because they've been doing it for so long, you know, like what is more beautiful than a 70 year old lifting her leg up in the air, you know? Exactly. um, So I think, you know, we are, we, we don't do it for being, for for being on display anymore but but we i think other people do see us and and we do matter but we don't maybe that's not the reason why we are taking care of ourselves and trying to find happiness and but the the voices that matter that the 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 things that we're taught matters you know like the male attention and the um media attention even like that can that someone else can have their turn at that. I I um I spent a lot of years <laughs> doing TV work. Yeah, have fun with that. I just I was sitting <laughs> last night reading a book, and I just had this like ping. Uh, I was thinking about our interview today, and I was like, man, I love podcasting because I love that how I look doesn't matter while I'm podcasting. And for the record, I still like dress really carefully and do my hair and makeup when I'm recording. Uh-oh. But I love I'll tell not you what being I'm wearing this. Yeah. I love not being on camera anymore. I love not having to be on the news every day. I used to do a lot of, um, I used to do a lot of media stuff. And so when I was getting dressed for work in the morning, I'd have to think about, oh, I might get a media call today. So it really does matter what I wear. Like, you know, I can't wear black. Mm-hmm. I can't wear black on camera. I can't wear checkers and I can't wear a ponytail because yeah. it makes you bald on camera. Like I had to always be so hypersensitive to all of that. And, um, and I'm, it's such a relief to just let someone else do it. Um, it's kind of great. Um, I want to have one, one last question for you. And it, it's, of course, a loaded question. So <laughs> what are you excited about going forward and what scares you? Uh, I think what I'm excited about is, I kind of referred to it earlier, is just this open space. What used to terrify me was open time. And um, it did as a young woman in my 20s. And then when I got working and had children, all of a sudden my time was filled up. And I was supercharged for 20 years. And I, you know, operated high, pretty high functioning then. And then when my kids, 
needed me less and they went off to school and beyond. The open time was really something for me to wrestle with. And now that I've learned how to fill it, um, it, it excites me. And uh, I actually have picked up a little tiny part-time work at a university that um, allows me to use the one aspect of my work that I love the most. And I have this little gig that I don't think would be there if I hadn't sort of redirected my path through sobriety. So I'm very excited about that, that I've uh, sort of morphed things the way that I wanted to. Um, I, you know, I kind of, just along the same line about this aging, I'm, I I find aging kind of exciting in some way. Where I used to dread it, um, I is I you know obviously I I want to stay in good health and but I'm not afraid of aging. I'm I'm excited just to see how things turn out. Um, what I'm scared about, I don't get scared like I used to in a big global way. Um, it's more problem of the day I don't have big um, deep things that I'm afraid about at this point probably if if I had to name one it would be just that I stay in good health that I can enjoy this life Mm -hmm. and my kids and my family well that is a great note to end our discussion on you have me feeling good about myself going out the door today (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to have you Jean yeah, 50 rocks. That's right. <laughs> I, I don't mind it at all. That's all good. Good. I want to thank you so much for being uh, on the show tip with us today and for, for sharing this. I know, I know that you don't really like getting vulnerable and uh, <clears throat> broadcasting your feelings. So I, I know that this was definitely an act of service for you to share from your heart and and that uh, you know it will help others. And so thank you for taking the time. Oh, my and, pleasure, and Jean. It's always good to hear your voice. Uh, I'm going to get you to just hang on the line while I close out the show so that we can chat after, okay? Sure. Okay. okay. Yeah. So um, don't hang up, okay? You're going to just hear it go All quiet right. for a minute. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, so for all our listeners, if you have feedback or if you would like to share your story here on the Bubble Hour, write to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. And also, if you have any feedback for Margaret that you'd like to share with her, if you have any questions that you'd like me to um, get to her from you, you can email me those as well. Again, that's thebubblehour at gmail.com. I also ask you to check out shiningstrong.org. That's a not-for-profit organization that supports this podcast. And you can find The Bubble Hour and Shining Strong on Facebook. Uh, Bubble Hour is also on Twitter and iTunes. And we are on the web at thebubblehour.com. I'm Jean. My blog is Unpickled. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And my blog can be found at unpickledblog.com. So everyone, thank you for listening. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide We think you're strong you
want to be free. 